Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me is Major General Michel-Henri Saint-Louis, the Canadian Defence Attaché to the United States. He's a dapper chap. Uh, he's a brilliant soldier. Uh, he, he's an officer and a gentleman. Without further ado, welcome. Thank you very much for that introduction. I'm not sure about all those qualifiers, but uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. <laughs> well, thank you for hosting me. Now, or uh, <laughs> welcome. I'm hosting you too, so <laughs> uh, brilliant. For listeners, we are recording this in the Canadian Embassy, and if you haven't been to the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C., it's a spectacular building. Now, let's get to the business end. What is the latest in the Russia-Ukraine war? Where is the conflict headed? Well, that's a big question, Atul. So first, again, thank you for coming to see us at the Canadian Embassy. The fact that you deem it appropriate for us to have a conversation on what's happening in the world, the Canadian view of it speaks volumes about what you do to cover what's happening on the globe. Well, okay. We want more Canadian authors going forward. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Um, Very the, the, the Ukrainian conflict obviously is consuming a lot of bandwidth of senior leaders, military officials, militaries around the world, and are a number of governments that are there to help. The, the latest updates, uh, I, I will start by giving you my, my ignorance maybe in the state of the tactics and the procedures and what's happening on the ground. There was a time before I was the defense attaché that I was back in the Canadian Army and I had access to more of the latest updates. But here in the attaché world doing military diplomacy, I might not be the best person to give you the latest updates. What, what we do see and hear from the reports that I, that I read are probably similar to what your audience, who is well-informed, probably sees. Um, there, there's been kind of a stasis, a stalling of the advances. It's a mix of the use of modern weaponry, drones operating in the cyberspace, while at the same time on the ground, you have this kind of return to First World War type of defensive battles where trench lines are being established. What, what, but if you step away from what is actually happening in the battle space, I think it's fascinating to go back a year ago and some of the assumptions that folks had, some of the assumptions that in the inter international community, people were voicing that uh, Ukraine was not going to be able to hold, that Russia was going to go right into all the way to the capital. And in a matter of days, they were going to take over. All these doomsday scenarios did not come up. Yeah. They, I think there was a miscalculation or a, a, a an assessment of either too much strength in the Russian military and not so much confidence in the Ukrainian military side. And I think from a macro level, there's something to study there. Also, who would have predicted that NATO would be growing in a time of conflict? Who would have predicted that Finland is now the 31st country, Sweden hopefully soon to join NATO? If the intent, and you hear that from a number of experts, if the intent of the president of Russia was to splinter the NATO alliance or make us doubt in the, the resolve of the alliance. It's the absolute opposite that has happened. So those are heartening comments um, that I would make on where is the battle going. Spring is coming. You hear a lot of uh, talk about Ukrainians going on the offensive, retaking some of the land. You see a bunch of countries and nations donating equipment. Canada heavily involved in the training effort, as we were since 2015. Since 2015 to today, Canada has trained 35,000 Ukrainian soldiers together with 
British forces, American forces to begin with. But now a number of partners and allies are training Ukrainians in the weapons that we are giving them as we donate equipment, artillery, air defense, now uh, armored main battle tanks. Canada has donated 10% of its main battle tank numbers, eight main battle tanks, one recovery vehicle. They're all in Europe now. Half of them are in the hands of Ukrainians. And we are training them to join this Ukrainian force that we are all thinking is getting ready to go on the offensive to retake some of the land that they lost since February of last year. So you mentioned that you've been donating equipment and you've trained 35,000 soldiers, and that's a big amount. So clearly you are heavily involved. And my question uh, to you, and I know you may not be the most uh, up-to-date, but still, you're a military man uh, with distinguished mm -hmm. service. So we've heard about drones. We've heard about anti-tank missiles, the javelins, the end laws. We've heard about rocket systems, uh, HIMARS. Um, and we've heard about lots more. So tell me what uh, weapons have worked, what have not. Uh, what are the military lessons of the Russia-Ukraine war? There's a lot being written right now and people thinking about that exact question as well. Uh, what, what are we learning? What, is, what are Western armies and militaries learning? What is the Russians learning? And then you can even extrapolate what are the Chinese learning? I think everyone is studying it. I, I was just speaking to our uh, uh, top armored general, our meaning I'm Indian, of course, so I'm speaking to an Indian general. And uh, it was interesting to hear what he had to say. And then I was speaking to my American friends uh, Marines, and it was very interesting to hear what they had to say. But I'm very curious uh, to hear from uh, from you, from the Canadian. I will make I will give you four four things that stand out for me, and and some of them are linked to our efforts with the Ukrainian military since 2015. And the first one is the approach to battlefield leadership, the approach to mission command. Some have coined the Western way of war, if you want. Mm. So if I bring you back to the comment I made that at the start of the war, a lot of pundits and uh, analysts thought the Ukrainian forces were not going to be able to hold. Well, you had columns of armored vehicles, uh, motorized infantry from the Russian side advancing, airborne troops advancing. You have like tens of thousands of Russians going forth on the advance, on the offensive. On the defensive side, you had Ukrainians who for the last four or five years, some of them had been trained by Western thinking nations. And one of the elements in that training was the approach to mission command, was the approach to empower junior leaders, mm. was the approach to allow some independence in the battle space. And if I can single out one of those elements that stopped the column of armored and motorized vehicles that was driving towards Kyiv in that first week. Well, it's the independent tank hunting team. Mm. It is the sniper team. It is the section of infantiers who will go dismounted through an indirect approach and find a target and attack or dislocate or interdict the target. That team of three or four Ukrainian soldiers that would take out an armored vehicle on this column um, some of their training is inspired or was gleaned 
from what they saw from NCOs and junior officers from the Canadian, the British, the American Army, this reliance on independent initiative is something that has is different than what you see on the Russian side. On the Russian side, you see this old Soviet tactic, this immobilism, if it is not very senior leaders who are leading. You see it in the statistics of how many Russian generals have died because they have to, you, you need a general to be in front to lead. While I would say the Ukrainians rely on the young soldier, the young lieutenant, the young sergeant who are leading independently. That would be my first lesson. Second point I would say is logistics matter. Mm. Logistics are important. Planning for the sustainment of your fight, aligning your stocks, your reserves, making sure that you are not just planning for that initial shock of the offensive, the defensive, the, the, the force on force, but you have thought through what's going to be your rate of consumption. What do you do with your casualties? How do you sustain the fight? What do you do if the plan doesn't go according to plan? That goes back to the Duke of Wellington. That's not new. Logistics. Well, I would suggest that the <laughs> Russians didn't study the same books you did because they aligned their force on this big convoy. They centralized their logistics. Yeah. They made themselves vulnerable. And... The Ukrainians, again, exploited that vulnerability. And they didn't do what the Germans did during their Blitzkrieg campaign. The Germans, uh, it was Eric von Manstein who came up with the plan. Of course, Guderian and Rommel and von Rundstedt implemented it. And what they did was they combined mobile um, infantry, obviously armored, uh, even anti-aircraft guns they improvised, and, and air power combined all of it and moved seamlessly. And every commander basically had a lot of autonomy. Exactly. So that example, historical example, was enabled by a, a trail of logistic support that yes. followed that advance at rapid rate and was based on a, a, a doctrine and training sense that system that had empowered commanders to make decisions. So in your example, Atul, I always use, I often use mm -hmm. the um, vignette that to achieve that success, the orders that were given by the German high staff to some of these generals were very simple. See you in Paris in six weeks. Yeah. It, when the that is the, is when that is the order, yeah. and then you empower your team to succeed, I bet you $2 that the Russian orders were not as simple and were not to be followed without any more guidance. They needed more guidance. They need more apparatus. The Ukrainians um, were able to exploit some of that Soviet-era style of war fighting through their great effect in the logistic front. Third point, and I have two more to make. So third point is the importance of airs. Mm. So in the Western world, we have fought wars in Iraq. We have fought wars in the Middle East, wars in Afghanistan. And at least in the last war that I was involved in, in those two battle spaces in Afghanistan and then serving in Iraq, the Western nations benefit from incredible air superiority. You control the airspace. Like to, to eight degree. I remember being in contact in Panjway, and the minute you call in the air or a team calls con troops in contact, you have layers of air assets that descend <laughs> from helicopters to fighters to high altitude assets who are all there to help you in your tactical fight. None of this, these two warring factions have been able to establish air superiority. 
it has confirmed some of the lessons. Mm. And, and maybe there's some questions to glean from that. Why have not the Russians been able to establish air superiority? What has been effective on the Ukrainian side? I think air defense, you mentioned it earlier, plays a role. The last point, you know, it's funny you talk about Wellington and Napoleon, and we've gone in a roundabout way talking about the Second World War. History has a way of repeating itself. And I would use uh, the last observation, something that I think every war historian would point to is morale matters. Mm -hmm. What you're fighting, mm -hmm. your willingness to fight until the end, the reasons you are on the battlefield, the unit cohesion, the la raison that you are willing to die for whatever you're fighting. Morale matters. And the Ukrainians are demonstrating in spade. They're in a war of survival. The Russians are not. Mm. So those are kind of four observations that come to mind. Brilliant. So let's uh, move on from uh, Ukraine. And you've referred to Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, you've served in both places. So let's begin with Afghanistan. Where did the West go wrong? Why is the Taliban back in the saddle after 20 years? Wow. You have, you have these existential <laughs> questions. You give me way too more credit, too much credit if you think I can answer those. Uh, I listen. mean, after all, you're one of the most brilliant minds uh, in Canada. I, I, I don't know. I That's don't know. what I'm told. Oh, God. I don't know who you're talking to. Um, I, I will not our, pretend. Our friend, our, our friend General Hiroyuki Sugayu, thinks the world of you. Oh, he's a great friend. I will not pretend to be able to answer where, where did the West go. I did serve in Afghanistan. But let's, let's begin with militarily. So, militarily, you had air cover, you had domination. So let me try so to... What happened? Let me try what to... your experience? To, let's make it simple. I've served twice in Afghanistan. I've served in 2006, embedded in the Afghan government. So I was not in fighting in Kandahar like other elements of the Canadian forces. I was actually part of a strategic advisory team in the government helping them to build their public service. That was my first tour in Afghanistan. And uh, you were working for the directly for the president? or for So I was working in the Department of the Afghan Public Service uh -huh. who reports to the president. They had a huge public service directorate and they needed to be able to pay their employees, organize their employees, All provide the services to, their, to the population, which would then make the value proposition of the government is worth protecting versus the Taliban. So that was 2006. I go back in 2010 and 11 as the commander of the last battle group involved in combat operations for Canada. And I was in Panjway trying to give them a chance, trying to make Panjway put them on the path for this alternative world where they are not under the le jug du Taliban. Canada stayed until 2014 as part of the training mission. And then in 2014, we left. So we, we stayed from 2002 to 2014. The international community continued until 2021 um, when we, we left. So 20 years, billions of dollars, gold, uh, treasure, and blood from a number of countries. Canada is the country that, that pro-rate rata ratio-wise lost, I think, third most mm. amount of soldiers and civilians after the UK and the Americans after the Afghans themselves. So why did it fail? I think it goes back to what motivates people. It goes back la to la raison. 
I think by 2023 or sorry, by 2020, 2021, there was this sense that uh, the international community and uh, the American-led efforts there for domestic political reasons that I will not criticize, each government makes its own decision. Canada had stopped its mission in 2014. We're going to scale down or leave altogether. And when the dynamic in the schoolyard changes, when the dynamic in the schoolyard changes, then uh, the calculus for the people in Afghanistan changes also. So this Afghan National Army and National Police that had been trained sees changing landscape of the strategic context. When they see what their leaders do, I talked about leadership, when they see their president flee, when they see their senior leaders leaving or changing sides, it affects the individuals. And if I link it back again to the example of Ukraine, it became a crushing blow to the morale of the people and the military and the security apparatus that was not able to withstand this return of the Taliban. If I may, going a little bit more personal, for a while, on a personal level, I was kind of broken. I've served there, like I said, twice. I've lost teammates. I have had to knock on mother's doors to announce that they had lost their son there. And to then find myself in July with Panjway having just fallen, Massamgar having just fallen. Massamgar is the base where Canadians uh, operated for seven or eight years. Um, on the day that I handed over Massamgar to the American battle group that replaced me is the day that in the news, the Taliban took over Massamgar. <laughs> and I, for, for weeks and months after that, I, I, I still have a hard time just, you're making me reconnect with that memory and talk about it. I don't talk about it that often, but it was a very difficult time to try to reconcile in my own mind the questions that everyone had. Did we go there for nothing? Why were we there? Where did we fail? Like you said in your question, two things help me still today when I think about the conflict. One is that in Massamgar, compared to other places in Afghanistan, the troops that were there fought until they had no more. The Afghan National Army and police troops that were there fought until they were overcome with that was not the case in every place in Africa. Certainly not. And in Massimbo, the troops that were there, our troops that served with us, our troops that we trained, our partners when we were there fighting. So I, I can put, at least in my memory, this sense that there's something to them having been with us or us having been with them for a number of years that made them still believe that they can fight for their district. And then a couple of Months later, I'm still hurting, knowing that a lot of my teammates who I served with were hurting. Thousands of Canadian Armed Forces veterans and serving members now across the force were all hurting from this news. And I reached out to my interpreter, who now lives in Ottawa, and he was my Afghan interpreter there. He's a Canadian Afghan. Um, he served there with me. And uh, we had not talked in 10 years. He invited me to his home in a suburb of Ottawa. Big, big house, family lives in the house. Number of people, three generations living in the house. He hosted me in the basement. We sat on the floor, Afghan food, took off my shoes, and we talked for three hours. As if we had just seen each other the day before, and it had been 10 years. And at some one point in the conversation, he said, 
Mike, you need to give yourself a break because I was being hard on myself, thinking that it was my fault. And he said, the Western coalition, the like-minded nations, NATO, Canada, gave Afghan people 20 years, gave an effort, put in billions of dollars. You came and helped. And there's a point in time that some of that responsibility doesn't fall on the shoulders of the international community. It falls on the shoulders of the Afghans. And him to say that was helpful, at least to me, Mm -hmm. to be able to reconcile. But it is two different conflicts. It's two different mindsets. It is different when you fight a country that invades your country than when you fight your own within the country, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, first question uh, that arises is that, is it even a country at all? Because Afghanistan began as a construct. Yes, as a buffer. And people forget, uh, those who are not historians, it was a buffer first between the Persian and Mughal empires. The Persians and the Mughals fought three historic battles over Kandahar. Uh, Persians eventually won, of course. And then it was a buffer between the Soviets and the Brit- not Soviets, the Russians mm-hmm. and the British yeah. Empire. The great game, the great was, game was being played out. Exactly. And, uh, Rory Stewart has a phenomenal documentary on Afghanistan. And, you know, he served there for the Brits. Um, and uh, then it became a play for the Soviets and the Americans. Mm-hmm. And the Americans uh, funded uh, the jihad. They funded the Mujahideen. Uh, and Charlie Wilson's war captures that in a very dramatic fashion. So, uh, in a way, you know, the the entire democratic experiment in a multi-ethnic, lots of tribes, warring tribes, traumatized society was, was a tortured one. And, and what you talked about in the Public Affairs Committee, and I'll stop here, because I know the region as well, and we've had so many conversations, our friends there too, and. Uh, lost friends there too, was also the extraordinary corruption of the likes of Ashraf Ghani, who has a terrible reputation, or even before that, Hamid Garzai. So it's a complicated thing. Now let's move on to another complicated part of the world, Iraq. You know, how was it similar? How was it different? Of course, the US-led coalition achieved spectacular success in defeating Saddam Hussein and ousting him. But then ISIS happened. And now, of course, Iraq is de facto Kurdish Shia Sunni. It's a fractured land. So what happened there? Again, these questions you have for me, pretending to be a PhD student in history, I will, I, I, you are right in saying that I Well, you there. have lived history, all right? <laughs> so a PhD part, student part in it. history part, just lives, part, uh, lives in uh, documents. So I have, I have served there. That, that is my last operational deployment. I was in the region for 14 months between the spring of 2019 to the summer of 2020. A and critical time. Critical time. And yeah. that time, if you, if I can bring you back, a number of things happened. There was a, a return to um, kind of an Arab revolt 2.0. There was riots in, in Beirut and in Baghdad and in a couple of other uh, cities yeah. in the region. If you remember, I remember Shia, Mili- Shia yeah. militia groups became active in a way that they had not been for a couple of years yeah. before and now turned on coalition and American troops in Iraq. You had the Syria conflict that completely changed when uh, Turkey came in across the border. Russia came in and started to hold and help 
the Assad regime stay in place. This all transpires in, in 2019. You then have the Soleimani strike. Yes. In Baghdad. It's just our yeah. listeners may not know, Qasim Soleimani was uh, an Iranian general. He was a bit of a legend. He had fought uh, ISIS. Uh, but he'd also been a pain in the, in the wrong part of the anatomy to Americans and their allies. It, as he was in charge of the Republican Guard, yeah. he was often seen as being the man behind Hezbollah and some of the uh, attacks on American and coalition interests. So he was charismatic taken, fellow with a big following in Iran and along the, the, the community. But he was he was killed. And then that bar brought the area to the brink of war with Iran. Iran retaliated. If your um, audience remembers, they shot down a civilian aircraft. Yes. Took, out, took yeah. off from um, Tehran. It had more than 60 Canadian Iranians on board. And uh, there was a moment in time in that winter of 2019 to 2020 that uh, we all held our breaths, that we thought something really bad could happen, a mistake, a miscalculation that could have inflamed the whole region. And then if I fast forward a little bit through these tensions, um, there's a NATO mission to help train the Iraqi army that is ongoing. And all of that kind of comes to a halt when COVID hits the planet in March 2020. And I stayed in theater until that summer. So to come back to your question, no, great I mean, American success. went wrong. What yes. is similar? What's different? What is similar? Okay. Let's, let's so, start with that. So, let's not just do but a PhD. I will, but, I will but I will fast forward maybe to uh, Daesh. So when Daesh comes, mm -hmm. they exploit some of the scenes. They exploit some of the, the splintered population in Iraq that I think was exacerbated by this Western way we have of going somewhere and we thinking that we have the answer. Yeah, I mean, I spoke about this to General David Petraeus um, in, in one of uh, uh, our YouTube videos, and, and I pushed him on departification, and he admitted that it was a mistake. So I will not disagree with General Petraeus or you. <laughs> and uh, I would say on a more general level is sometimes we have we made decisions and history has shown that in Afghanistan, like we were talking earlier, in, in Iraq, after the Second World uh, Gulf War, the decisions that were made in the space of rebuilding the country, capacity building, re um, putting a government back in its place, putting them on a path to democracy, rebuilding the economy, rebuilding its social fabric, that maybe Western nations did not make the best decisions in that space, mm -hmm. did not invest in the right development efforts, did not bank or uh, support the right leaders mm -hmm. that would come out. And the outcome might be proof of that. What I think is... So what, that is the similarity between the I two. think it is. And what is the difference? How was... Iraq different to Afghanistan? Probably a richer economy to begin with, with oil. You might be right. I will point you to something maybe different that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I think when you have the rise of the Taliban that comes back again in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. there is no immediate panic in the world that the rest of the countries in the world are going to be threatened by the Taliban. When Daesh comes up in 2014, incredible success in 2015, Syria, Iraq. The rhetoric, the fervor, the way Daesh was coming onto the world stage 
there was a real concern that this would be like, uh, it would catch fire and Western countries, Europe would be affected immediately. Mass exodus, for example, immigration into Turkey, immigration across the Mediterranean, beheadings of of Western, um, the ressortissants occidentaux, and that Daesh was a nexus, was a threat. 70, more than 70 countries agreed and formed this coalition that was willing to go and fight. So notwithstanding... Including Gulf Arab states, not just the West. Absolutely. Saudi pilots. So the chaos in Qatar suddenly has Arab nations coordinating airstrikes Mm -hmm. into Syria and northern Iraq to stop the Daesh advance. That is not insignificant Mm. alignment of national interests. So what you're saying is there's a fundamental difference between Daesh or ISIS and Taliban because Daesh presented an existential threat for world peace in some ways. The national interests of all of these countries were threatened were yeah. threatened by Daesh in a way that they would not be threatened by the Taliban. And therefore, you have an alignment mm-hmm. of what to do to correct that. And 70, more than 70 countries put up an air campaign and then a ground effort to help the Iraq take back um, Fallujah and Mosul and slowly but surely push Daesh back out. And now there are remnants pockets in northeastern Syria that remain. because there was overwhelming success. Mm. I, I think that is a marked difference that when the Taliban start having success, there's no such alignment that happens in Afghanistan. Yeah, so that is a big difference. And, and Iraq now um, is, um, is uh, divided into three distinct entities and, and the government is barely functioning. So. Where do you see Iraq headed from a geopolitical slash military lens? Is it contained? Is it, uh, will, it, will its divisions be internal and not, no longer be an external threat? I put, I put my faith in the people of mm-hmm. Iraq. I put my faith in the people that I, I got to see, not intimately, but from a certain distance in, in the Kurdis, Kurdish, Kurdish area, areas, yeah. in, in Baghdad, and from my experience, which now is somewhat dated, it's three years ago, sure. but still might be relevant. I think the Iraqi people want something different. Mm-hmm. And even if it means that a country is, is splintered mm-hmm. through this loose federation, that this being puppets of, of Iran is not something they want. Being the battles area where Western nations come and fight mm-hmm. um, Muslim extremism is not what Iraqis want. I think they might be a status quo that might not be the best outcome, but could point us to at least a semblance of peace, Mm -hmm. is at least my hope. I see. I see. And yet again, we are coming to uh, the question whether Iraq itself is a nation, because it's a product of Sykes people, which ISIS never accepted. And the Kurds uh, were promised their own nation in Versailles in 1919, and they never got it. Uh, so, uh, I remember General Tim Twine Sewell um, back in the day when the Iraq War broke out, which shows I'm getting old. He was, he, he was the commandant <laughs> of Sandhurst, and he said, The trouble at all is that orders in the Middle East are all in the wrong place. Uh, but if you set them, uh, if, if them right, well, 
first of all, what is the right piece? Is it it's all, it's all a mishmash? And second, if, if you redraw them, that opens another set of, another can of worms. And how do you deal with that? And so I think he was prescient. He was obviously not exactly for the war, as you can imagine. But I think, again, we are, in, in, from what I'm hearing, we are dealing with political situations, and there are no military solutions. Often, and, and maybe I will end with that, often we find ourselves in a military conflict or the, using the military instrument of power when we do not see the way that the other instruments of power could be used to find a solution. And uh, hopefully going forward, um, we can think on how to solve these conflicts in a different way to get us away from what we are seeing, war in Europe, where these borders mm. are at stake. Brilliant. On that uh, positive note, thank you so much, General. Real pleasure, real honor, and pleasure we'll have mine. you on again. Merci d'être venu. Derrière, merci beaucoup.